KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. My guest will not remember this, but I first met him backstage after a performance of David Mamet's play, Race, and I was talking to my friend David Allen Greer about the actor Anu McMaster, and he said, I've seen him before, who, because McMaster is an actor that Harold Pinter writes about in his book of playwrights, Playwright. And my guest, Sir Patrick Stewart, walked over and said, of course I know Anu McMaster. And you started talking about him. And that same kind of passion and discernment about acting can be found in his book, Making It So, a memoir. My guest is Sir Patrick Stewart. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. When you started talking about McMaster and seeing him perform and your life as a young actor, for me, it was such a thrill to pick up this book and see so much of that detail here. Yeah. Well, there's a little story attached to how this all came about. Uh, I had been approached once before by Simon Schuster, who uh, had an offer for me to write a memoir, but I was working so much TV, stage, and there's no time to uh, be writing a book. And so I always had to turn it down. This time, my agent called me and said, you've had a great offer from Simon Schuster. And look, Patrick, I know how much you love your job. And I do. I really love my work. I mean, the work that I get to do. He said, but there ain't any work. Nobody's going to be working. It was 2020, covid And he said, so, you not got anything to do, why not give it a shot? And if you don't like doing it, we'll just return the advance and, and, uh, (laughs) you know, you can go back to doing jigsaw puzzles, which I do do as a relaxation. Anyway, after two weeks of preparing in my head, I finally sat down at my desk in my office room study upstairs here in Los Angeles and... I started writing. And I had been preparing myself for this by trying to open my mind to my childhood. Childhood, it's got to start there. That's when the impact on a life are first made and they can stay with you for the rest of your life. So I was trying to, in my head, and I made a few notes, it's true, but not many. They went down so that when I began finally writing flowed. And I, it was giving me so much pleasure. Names of childhood friends that I had not thought about for decades was coming into my head. Memories of, I mean, there's this thing about the squirrel being shot in here and how profoundly upset I was. I broke down and sobbed in my mother's arms when I got home because One of my gang had shot a squirrel to death, and we were all just watching it on the tree, and he had an air rifle, and, you know, bang, bang. And so 
It began very well, and it certainly passed the time. It helped me deal with no employment, and uh, and uh, my, my wife was enthusiastic too because I was around a lot more. I was up there, and it was. Uh, but never did I expect it to get to this stage. But again, when I met you and the way you were talking about, and I'll never forget this guy got a chance to talk to somebody who'd seen and knew McMaster on stage. And the way you talked about that, I was actually sort of struck by that. You tell the story about your grandfather and your grandmother taking you to see him uh, because the police were looking for him. And you got, it really, it was your first exposure to the stage. But it's also all these parts of your life connecting that in its way becomes this sort of microcosm of what your life is. Family intrigue and acting <laughs> together. <laughs> yep, that's right. That's very much how it has been. And of course, one of the great appeals I discovered, I learned from doing it for acting was that I could cease to be Patrick Stewart. What do you mean? Well, as a child, I never really liked myself very much. It always seemed to me that my friends were smarter, more fun, interesting than I was. And also, my, my fa as I, uh, I've written in the book, my family life was troublesome. I would say you learned how to become Patrick Stewart in your 40s. Especially as you talk about learning to relax, because as you tell the anecdote about sort of calling your comrades from the next generation on the carpet for being too frivolous. <laughs> you know, a year later, I was voted the funniest man on the show and the most. It only took a year for me to dissolve from being such a pompous, <laughs> if you'll forgive the expression. Um, really, it was just shocking. And thank goodness I was surrounded by Jonathan and Brent and Michael and LaVar, Denise. And Will Wheaton. <laughs> and Will, Will Wheaton, Wheaton, yes. And Marina Sirtis. If I don't mention Marina, she'll be after me. I know. <laughs> um, but they were wonderful. They laughed and laughed and laughed about me saying, we are not here to have fun. <laughs> Can you imagine the My pompous... Well, I was to say that. Well, my guest who was on his way to apparently being one of the Borg even then is Patrick Stewart. His book <laughs> is making it so a memoir. It's The Treatment, which you can also at com slash The Treatment. But what I was getting at with that anecdote, and it really starts to happen around chapter 14 of the book, is you finding family. Because it seemed for a long time you were, you didn't have a family who shared something in common with you. And the beginning of that was you talk about meeting Brian Blessed. I can only imagine your two voices ringing backstage as you were talking about things. But having a chance to see Peter O'Toole, who swore at you yeah. from the stage. And yes. you finding this tribe, this group that you belong to, which you didn't find until you left home. No. And then as you go on and on in your life and have more and more of these touchstone moments, you get more comfortable with yourself. That's what the book seems to say to me. Yes, you've analyzed that, I think, very appropriately. But um, I still get a great kick out of losing myself in someone else's life. I, I do, because I've, I've changed my approach to work in recent years, and I'm still experimenting with it. And it's interesting for me, we watch a lot of television at the moment, and film, but, but on TV, don't go out much. And it's always intriguing 
to see how young actors are developing because it's changing, particularly actresses. They have got a different rhythm in their speech. They, they tend to speak very much faster and also sometimes very softly. And when I, I once or twice I've had to say, look, I'm really sorry, but could you just say that a little bit louder? Because I can't hear it, but it's my cue for my next line. You know, and I go, okay, I'll do my best. But then you watch it, and of course, sound has become so brilliant in the last years that so someone talks like this. They're talking from inside them, and the microphone hears it, and, and it sounds real. And so I'm intrigued by this. So it's something, you know, I've been on stage acting Shakespeare, and it's huge, you know. And Dickens, which I told you I've seen you do. And and Dickens, 38 characters, yeah. yeah. And uh, it makes me so joyful. And occasionally, you know, you you walk into trouble or hit difficulties and whatever. Well, see, though, as you're saying that, I think about two generations of two of very intense actors who you had a chance to work with. And one of them was a seminal influence we were talking before the show started about you seeing Rod Steiger on the waterfront as a kid and then getting a chance to sort of act that more or less that same scene with him in the political thriller Hennessy where he's bigger than life and he looks like he's going to kill you in front of the camera. And then a few years later, you got to work with an equally intense actor who wasn't quite as forthcoming, and that would be uh, a young actor named Tom Hardy. <laughs> Who, my, one of my favorite parts of the book is as, as he walks off the stage, you say, well, we shall never hear from that young man again. <laughs> I am so shocked at my saying that. It, it had been a troublesome film all round, but I think it was Tom's first major piece of work. He was very young. And I I did say that to one or two of my colleagues, and they laughed. And, of course, a couple of years later, all of a sudden, wham, there he was, and going up and up and up. And and I have adored his work. There is one thing he did where he's driving a car, and he's alone in the car. For the entire movie, he's just hearing voices on the phone. Yeah, he's talking on the phone. I was riveted by that performance. He's extraordinary. And I I met him once, and I I tried to apologize because this story had got around about what I said. And he was a little bit reserved and quiet. But uh, so that was fine. That was absolutely fine. But his work is outstanding. You're talking about how actors are changing from generation to generation. I think that's an example of that because they're both intense, I would say, Tom Hardy and Steiger in ways that are very similar. Intense and and macho and aggressive. And But, you know, the affect of them off away from the camera backstage is very different. And I think Steiger is that generation of actors who wanted to be part of a family too, who embraced. And you mentioned in the book that when he sees you years later, when you become a big TV star, apparently, in some show called Star Trek The Next Generation, I should read about (laughs) it. Anyway, (laughs) that he invites you over to the table. And so what I'm saying is that you getting the chance to see the way acting has changed it definitely has to change you because the one thing that really comes across in this book is you have this kind of insatiable curiosity about people and more importantly about places. Every new place you go to in the book, you write about with this relish. I mean, the way you write about Mexico 
in the book is just wonderful, or even Park Slope and encountering these new places. I mean, it's of course it flowed out of you. Because well, it, I, I've learned how big an impact an environment can have on your life and what you do with it, too. And the fact that when I was first introduced to what we called Amdrams, Amateur dramatics. dramatics. It was being with adults because it, it wasn't a children's group I joined. The staff of my school had a drama group, and my English teacher was directing this one. And I realized one of my problems about being a child with other children was I was actually more comfortable with adults than with children. I don't know why. It sounds a weird thing to say, but it was true. From the moment that I uh, was on a stage with my maths teacher and my English teacher, and the, who, who was the man who first put a copy of Shakespeare into my hand, I felt at home, as I did the first time I walked onto an authentic stage, uh, which was empty, and nobody else was there with me, and I felt safer than I'd ever felt in my life to then. We're going to take a short break. My guest, who I last saw wearing a dress, is Sir Patrick Stewart. <laughs> His book is making it so a memoir. We'll get into that in the second half of the show. It's the treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. Oh, my gosh. He's still here. Patrick Stewart is still here. It's the treatment. We're discussing his book, which only took a disaster of nature to make him write. The book is making it so a memoir. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. There's something in absurdism or even in Shakespeare where words are repeated and you have to give way to them. You talk in the book about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Yes, yeah. Sir Ian McKellen that taught you. beautiful. You said that perfectly. No one's ever said that before. Are we recording this? Um, uh, <laughs> Ian McKellen would, yes, have given you a big thumbs, thumbs, thumbs up for that. I'll take that in absentia. <laughs> but what we're talking about here, and I think it's one of the reasons you're attracted to the absurdist, is because there's so often repetition that you have to play in the moment rather than trying to look for subtext in it. Yes. I just think having a chance to see you again do that stuff. And also Pinter, where it's, it's about the abstraction and the word having to land because there's so few of them. Yes. I mean, for you, words as an actor are these islands, these archipelagos that you skip to and try to figure out. Well, you know, it's the quote that you just gave from Macbeth, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, it's really quite simple because when Macbeth says out loud, he's, he's just been told his wife has just died or she's, I think, committed suicide. And he says... Tomorrow, but he doesn't know that the next thing he's going to say is, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. They, they happen like that. And so with great writing, it's, it's not like you're breaking it down. You're letting even simp simple words like A-N-D, and, have a power and a meaning which, which can... I mean, make an audience sit up and be, oh, what? My God, what is he going to do? What's happening to him? It makes it such an interesting job. And, and that still look on it as a job, you know. 
it's not an art oh, form. It's yeah. First of all, A, that's not true. B, I hope you don't believe that because the way you practice it shows that you're giving a lot of that. But it's a calling for you. I mean, again, you, you're talking about being around those adults, being around your teachers on stage. You find yourself in that. And all these moments as you're growing into becoming Patrick Stewart. And then once you get there, having to reckon with the fact that the world hasn't caught up with you as a Patrick Stewart yet. <laughs> it's kind of wonderful to me. The book takes its time because it takes you a while to become this person that you are. And then it takes you a while to find pleasure in being that person that you are. For me, it's it's really a coming-of-age story that's still a work in, in, in progress for you, isn't it? That is a wonderful comment, and I shall engrave it on my what we call in in the acting business, sense memory, um, because it's so important. One of the problems is that being 83 bothers me a little bit because, you know, there are conditions attached to being 83. You know, you, usually you've retired and you, you moved on or you're sitting at home or you're traveling or you've gone to live in the south of France. But instead, just, I mean, you know, I see the, an email from my agent come in. And what? You know, no matter what else I'm doing, I've got to look at it right away. Is this? Is this something? Could this be the next, the next job? It's, it's just so exciting. When you say that, you sort of realize that when you got into your forties, that was the age you were kind of meant to be. So getting older, you don't really feel like you got older at all because no, you no, finally found no, yourself. No. That's, what, that's what I'm getting at. You found the discovered country for you to go Star Trek on you. Uh, and, and, and I think that all these encounters you're having, we can sort of feel the intensity change, that you're actually sort of taking in more and you're not judging yourself so harshly by the last third of the book, which is fascinating because you talk about writing this. I want to ask you about that. You're really hard on yourself in this first third of this book. And I wonder if this because you have those those memories are still so dear and, and, and potent for you. It's partly because I'm I'm I was exploring to what extent was I responsible for the circumstances under which I was living. I know that will sound crazy. If you're a seven year old child living in a very, very modest, not to say impossibly small home. But also a home that seemed to be in the Victorian era. Yeah. I mean, you weren't living in the modern world in that home. No. No, 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 no. No hot water, no toilet, no bathroom. And by the way, if you're listening, I guess, who, thank God he's not at home doing jigsaw puzzles, is Sir Patrick Stewart. His book is Making It So, a memoir. As you can also see the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. I keep going back to that because I, I keep feeling like as modernity catches up with you, the world becomes an easier place. And that first throw of that book, you're so hard on yourself because it's, you just use the term sense, sense memory. You're reliving all of that stuff. And we can feel the coldness of the house and the smallness of those rooms in each of those sentences. Even when you're not describing the place, we feel how claustrophobic and gray it is. Yes. And, and by the way, th this also follows 20 years of analytical therapy as well that I have undertaken, which has been invaluable to me. And it still remains. I don't now do the weekly or twice-weekly visits that I used to do, but I keep in touch, and it's always supportive and always helpful because, 
you know, you're, you're exploring aspects of your unconscious mind. I, I was at a wedding yesterday, two dear friends, both young women, and they each made a speech after the ceremony. And one of them talked about love being understanding. Now, I'd never really had those two words connected together in the way that she did, that without understanding, love isn't possible. And that's the place you go into, which is understanding of yourself and the rest of the world, if possible. And just absorbing it, not so that you can rise up and, you know, with a battle cry, charge at the enemy. Not at all, no. Just that you absorb other people's lives. And it brings uh, an empathy of kinds. See, I would venture, encounter, or ask that that constant, and we talked, you mentioned it, you they have this insatiable curiosity about people and places. And all this sort of absorbing of emotional information, as I think, made you a more daring actor. I think what you're playing a fascist. Braver. Do you think braver? I do. Yeah, a little, a little braver. Um, I I started a habit several years ago now, but it stayed with me because I like it. Um, <laughs> which is that before I make a first entrance in a play, if it's in the sta- on stage. Or if, uh, you know, they're about to roll cameras and uh, say action, I always say out loud, but very softly, and I can say it here because I've got a microphone in my mouth, I can say, I don't give a damn. And then I can make my entrance. Then I can say, you know, roll camera, I'm ready, because it frees me up. I used to give too much of a damn when I was younger. I used to think there is a right way of doing this, and all I've got to do is find the right way and then repeat it again and again and again. No, it's not. That's not what you want to give an audience. You want to give an audience insight into what you are, who you are. And if you do that, and I watched it the other night, watching, indeed, my friend Ian McCallan in a play in London, and it was a two-hander. And their lives, quietly and gently, just opened up. It was a privilege to be part of it, although sometimes I felt this is almost too private. And it reminded me of when when I was playing Leontes in uh, Winter's Tale, who is one of the worst characters in dramatic literature. He's a monster, an appalling man. Because I didn't know what to do. I've been made this offer, and it was my first leading role with the Royal Shakespeare Company. But And so one day in the green room, I, I, I saw sitting there Dame Peggy Ashcroft, the UK's leading female actress. And I thought, she will help me. And, so and, I, and, and somebody who had a decade of careers, going from stage to David Lane, who had done all this. And what oh, she told you is, I'm sorry, this anecdote is such a wonderful act. I don't want to get ahead of you. Please finish it. Well, uh, I said, look, I've... I've I need help. I've been offered um, Winter's Tale and to play Leontie. And she said, don't do it. Don't do it. He's a horrible man. Nobody likes him. You'll just be depressed all the time. Everybody hates him. They want to see him dead. And she raved on like this, but very supportingly. And I said, right, great. Thank you very much, Dame Peg. And then 
later, um, a friend of mine, a, a, an English professor at UCLA, David Rhodes, came to see it twice. And after the second time, he said to me, you know, I think you would have had a more personal success playing this role if you didn't make us all feel what was happening to you was so private, so exclusive, we shouldn't be there watching it. So you've got to make yourself more accessible. I mean, this is an English teacher giving me beautiful acting advice. Having a chance to see you on stage, uh, and I realize this, we've run out of time here. Basically, we've never talked about any of the characters people want to hear us you talk about, probably. But I am so fascinated by you as an actor. I love watching you when you're seated, <laughs> because so many of these characters you play don't get up. <laughs> Right, that's right, yeah. And you've often been static on stage, too. And what you do with a space, I mean, that's stage training coming into play, commanding a very small space because you know it's where you want the eyes to go. You see, you describe these experiences, and I already love them, but when I hear you describe them, it makes me feel so lucky, so fortunate that you've intuited that from my work, and it means that something is happening, you know? <laughs> it's, I know how, I don't have to, it's not I'm, just show business. I'm sorry to break it to you, but I wasn't in the theater by myself seeing those things. <laughs> I was there with hundreds of people who were having the same experience. It's what I'm saying about the, the book that's so much fun for me, finally, is just about your love of acting and the search for truth over Three, really, for me, three sections of your life, and you're coming understanding by the end of the book that the truth is something you find every day. You were a young man with a mission. You were talking about your determination and your sometimes lack of humor, but I, I get that. You're surrounded by adults who have to sort of grab at these moments to do plays because they have real lives. They're taking this very seriously, and you learned how to be serious about it without taking yourself seriously, didn't you? Yeah. Yes, I did. It was challenging, and it was not easy because I knew how we lived. I knew how I was being brought up. I knew the negative side of all of that. I knew that there were so many of my friends who were having a better life than I was. And the, the envy and confusion, not to say pain, that came with that was very difficult. Acting eased it all. And when I found that I could introduce more and more of it into how I approached my work, I, I, I found I could live with these memories so much more comfortably than, than I had before. Rod Steiger, in that famous lunch time that he and I had, when we finished and they called him uh, back on set, and I was done for the day because I only did half a day's work, and that was it. And, and so the film uh, Hennessy. But, but, he, but he, again, he brought you into his world. He oh, saw yes. something in you. He did, yeah. He, he, he invited me to have lunch in his trailer. And, and he was very tolerant when I just poured questions over him. And at one point, just as we were about to break up and leave, he said, Patrick, one, one final thing. It's really important that you remember the camera photographs thoughts. It had never occurred to me to look on it that way. And of course he's right. And that's what 
the great actors that we admire and the young actors that I admire today are doing. They think on camera and there it is. You don't know what the words are exactly, but you know what the hell is going on, you know? Well, I think sometimes a microphone picks up thoughts too. It's picked them up today from my guest, Sir Patrick Stewart. His book is making it so a memoir. I can't thank you enough for doing this. Please come back. I would love to. Thank you. From stage, screen, and starships, Patrick Stewart walks readers through his memoir titled, of course, Making It So. It's available now wherever you buy books. Previous episodes can be next for you at the archive at kcrw.com slash the treatment. More to come is next. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It has been way too long since our old friend, Mr. Todd Haynes, has been here. The last time he was here, he was still writing movies as compared to just directing them now. Uh, his newest film is May, December, bringing back Julianne Moore as yet another one of his survivors. Todd, always good to talk to you. So good to talk to you, Elvis. It's been way too long. I'll try to describe the story without giving too much away, which is to say May, December is about an actor played by Natalie Portman who comes to a small town to uh, investigate and research um, a real-life person she's playing, and that person is played by Julianne Moore. And it's so funny because I flash back to Carol in some ways because she talks about gray areas so much, that character Elizabeth, and in a lot of ways she feels like a Patricia Highsmith character to me. How interesting. That hasn't come up in all these millions of interviews I've done. That That is a, such a cool perspective. No, I dig that. Because there is, there's something treacherous about her. I mean, they're both predators. I mean, I think the thing that you discover, and again, we don't want to give too much away because it, it, it is something that the audience gets to navigate – with such constantly shifting terrain under your feet where you really don't know where to stand and your allegiances toward the two women keep shifting. And in a way, your thoughts about one start to, to yield to insights about the other. And, you know, that whole process is so, is so fascinating. But I love that. I love the Highsmith idea. <laughs> I think that's really uh, relevant. Because the moral questions are being raised throughout the whole film, 
the criminality of Gracie's history is obviously being raised, but you can't not start applying questions about the ethics of what Elizabeth is doing on her side as an actor, you know, who's going to, like, keep doing what she does at any cost and and with whatever casualties come along the way. There's a scene in the film that so perfectly sort of tells us who she is when she's talking to those kids and the, that one kid tries to throw off, you were doing these sex scenes, and she turns yeah. the whole thing around on them. So by the end, she seduced them. And we can yeah. see the, we can hear the calculation and the deliberation and every word choice and every pause. I mean, it really is like watching Ripley every one of those books. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I just sort of thinking too also about the way that um, Gracie kind of makes herself a victim, but not a martyr. She's letting other people sort of like fill in the spaces for her. They're both playing people all the time. And and also that Elizabeth is always talking about gray areas is to say, well, I understand this. But in fact, using that terminology to manipulate people's expectations, oh, well, to make them think, oh, well, she knows their gray area, so she can't be a bad person. <laughs> that fascinates me, to these two people sort of fighting and see who can manipulate the others more. Just think about that other great scene where Gracie's watching her daughter try on dresses, yeah. which could be from yeah. a Douglas Sirk movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. It's funny, though, because you mentioned before we got on the air, Mildred Pierce being the last time we actually saw each other in New York at the premiere of Mildred Pierce all those years ago. Um, and Mildred Pierce, for people who may not know, is my adaptation of the James M. Cain novel that was a five-part um, episodic um, extended series on uh, HBO, my first and so far only limited series that I've done. And what's funny is I think of the, what's what's interesting about this story that came to me is that unlike so many of my films that feature female characters in domestic settings and so forth, very few of them are about women who are sort of leading the trajectory of the narrative by pursuing their desires and their wills. And in that way, I don't, it's quite different from Carol because these two women are falling in love, but they're facing so many social challenges to that love and sacrifices that come along with being able to, to fulfill those desires and, those, and that commitment to one another. And so it's a true love story in that sense, where, where the social barriers and boundaries that keep people apart are what make you yearn for the couple to find a way through. It's, it's Mildred Pierce that's the one that I thought of with uh, May, December, which is similar in that it's about this very unique, specific economic history in the United States and story about middle-class life in, in Los Angeles in the 1930s throughout that entire decade where the women are driving the train and they're the ones working and they're the ones starting businesses and it's the men who yield and who are passive and weaker characters and the women are really the stronger characters. Now, a lot of that gets caught up in the the dilemmas and the problems and the sort of pathologies of the mother-daughter relationship in that story. And so all that strength and, and ability and, and economic success are being driven by other things that are not healthy or, or, um, or productive in, in that way. But that's the one that I find some, some parallels to in, in May-December. It's the treatment. We're talking to our old friend, 
Todd Haynes was straightening me out about his new film, May December, which you can catch on Netflix. <laughs> Hardly. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. Because so often in your films, there's somebody who is kind of prey. That person has to figure out how they want to survive and how they're going to survive. I find myself thinking a bit about Carol, but mostly about Highsmith, just because there's often, a, when that happens, the film's even though they may be melodramatic in form, they tend to turn kind of noirish for me in that we're watching people who are determined to survive. And that's also a part of Carol. Those women are determined to try to find a way to survive. We can say that that's with Mildred Pierce. For me, that takes us all the way back to safe. These people who may not be equipped to survive in conventional ways, but will find ways to use their psychologies and the psychologies of others to survive. Absolutely. I mean... I think there's sort of a negative identity that is being explored in a lot of the domestic stories I've told, like like Safe, in in other films where the way people survive, and in, in these specific cases, women in these very prescribed domestic worlds survive, has so much to do with sort of yielding to the cultural terms around them and the options that are that are so limited for them and in what they want and who they are and in safe curiously it's the illness that that Carol White the character Julianne plays it's that's the thing that opens up questions about this life she's leading and it's like the values we usually assign to illness and cures are kind of inverted, where it's the illness that gives her the chance to kind of see things for the first time. And it's the cure that ultimately occupies that whole latter part of the film at this at this recovery center, Renwood, that basically raises more questions about how we sacrifice senses of ourself to other forces, and we yield to kind of definitions of illness and definitions of of identity and self that ultimately end up putting her in an even more isolated place than than we found her at the beginning of the story this film you know never really resolves this film being made december never really resolves the kind of um, combat that's being waged between these two central female characters and and the sort of power dynamic that keeps challenging each side of these of these women keeps you on your toes sort of till the very end but what it does do is open up this space for joe the man the central male character in the film played by charles melton oh my gosh he's so good in it todd and, and what's so great about that character is he, he he really is the iceberg and and each scene without telling us a whole lot gives us more information about him it's also is the way he exists in mise-en-scene, that we can tell from his placement in the room what he is at that particular moment. Yeah, he's marginalized in the frame, you know, in the first part of the film. He, he almost enters from the background and says <laughs> hello to, you know, he keeps entering from the, the background in the, in the first scenes of the movie and when Elizabeth first walks into that backyard barbecue at the beginning of the movie. But he slowly is taking these steps that really are both in terms of the character's progression, but also, as you you beautifully describe visually, 
in the film, he takes steps toward the center of the frame as well, so that you know these these scenes that sort of are a motif in in May December of mirrors, uh, scenes in set in mirrors. Um, there are several of them, and they're key in the development of the two female characters and the observation going on from one woman to the other, and particularly Natalie learning from Gracie how to embody this woman in a film and transform into her as an actress. Uh, but you're also aware of Gracie watching Natalie, and we're watching both of them in this sort of like, you know, little relay of looks and, and observation. But it's not until the end, toward the end of the film, that Charles Milton, you know, after that scene with him and Elizabeth in her inn, he occupies that place in the mirror, and he also looks into the lens of the camera because the lens of the camera is always playing the reflection of the character in the mirror. And he finally he has earned that moment, that sense of seeing himself. There's so often this, this perception of sickness as compared to what illness actually is or, somebody, or what's perceived to be a sickness is, is so often a part of, of, of the films, isn't it? It, it has been. It, it's definitely something that I think marks the first several films that I made. And there's no, it was no accident that illness and the way we interpret illness and the way illness plays out in our society would be a subject in, in those films because we were in the midst of a public health crisis around HIV AIDS that was motivating all kinds of creative activity and political activity and, and activism and research and development around treatment for AIDS. You don't pick your social milieu. You don't pick the culture that is or what is exploding around you. It happens to you. And that's what was happening to all of us in the end of the 80s and early 90s. And these were the years I settled in, in, in New York and began to really create the beginnings of my film career as a director. So Superstar, the film that I think people took, first took notice of in my work, the, the Karen Carpenter story, my film that uses, thank you, Greta Gerwig, Barbie dolls, to uh, <laughs> describe the life of uh, Karen Carpenter. But no, like Superstar was sort of the first uh, films that I think, you know, brought some attention to, to me as a filmmaker and helped me. It was a 47-minute-long short, a sort of awkwardly long short and not really a feature. Um, and it very quickly became something we couldn't distribute because of the, the music rights that I music, did not yeah, possess. Sure. Yeah. But, um, but it helped begin my career. We have this, that shift from physical illness to the perception of illness because these people are kind of living out of their time. For me, that kind of starts with Velvet Goldmine. And then we can take that pretty much through the films you've done in the 21st century where the illness has been a kind of a perception of a, of a psychological disorder rather than a physical thing, but it's still about people perceiving illness and what that does to the way folks interact in your films. The way I saw it was that it was those first three films, Superstar, Poison, and Safe, which are, which are all very, very different in style and, and subject matter, although you might draw more parallels between Safe and, ironically, the, the Karen Carpenter story, where illness really was the 
subject matter of all three of those films, although it was being explored in with different outcomes and and one based on actual an actual real life story of somebody struggling with anorexia nervosa and not not succeeding. And that I guess to me, Velvet Goldmine was the breakout. Finally, a kind of uh, not a artistic or creative breakout as much as an emotional one for myself about telling the story about this very remarkable moment in pop culture inspired by the glam rock music of the early 70s that was finally free to kind of dispense with illness and you know these 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 topics that that had so formed the beginning of my of my work i know we've kind of had this discussion before too but for me velvet goldmine starts the period of these characters, often protagonists or secondary protagonists, who people kind of at some point somebody says in the movie, "What's wrong with these people?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is mm-hmm. a line that could be, you know, <laughs> almost everything you've done. I mean, it's 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 ways that I guess character after character and in very different ways encounter themselves in the margins of the society of our society, and and sometimes without intending to be there or even realizing that's where they are, like in many of these sort of domestic stories that center on female characters, a different, often their period films set in the past. But in the two, those sort of music-driven films, feature films, um, Velvet Goldmine and then I'm Not There, inspired by the work of Bob Dylan, it's a sort of insistence on marginality as a, as a creative practice and as a way to find the most freedom to create. And so it's this positive application of the idea of an of a identity as something that you can't fix and that's always changing and always being rewritten and, and that is mercurial and not settled in a radical way, you know, and, and how sexuality can be seen in that regard as well in the glam rock uh, era. So yeah, I, I, but I do feel like if you're, that is a through line that that idea of marginality and and maybe you're, we're saying the same thing in different ways, you know, just that uh, that sense of finding yourself outside in one way or the other is something that that the audiences are confronted with in in different ways and from film to film. My guess is our old friend Todd Haynes, whose terrific new film, and I'm glad he was able to point out May December in the conversation because I'd be afraid to say it. His new film is May December. It's on Netflix. Todd, thanks again so much for doing this. Always great talking to you. Thanks, Elvis. It was such a pleasure. I loved it. Is it a Grimm's fairy tale or something right out of the tabloids? Director Todd Haynes wants us to decide about his film, May December, now on Netflix. Greta Gerwig, writer-director of Barbie, right, on an influence that plays with gender and genre. The treat is next. Past treats about the past and the present and the future at kcrw.com slash the treat. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. With the treat, director Greta Gerwig, whose Barbie created a landscape near our own with its own rules. Her treat did so in musical terms, and while not an overnight sensation, is still changing the way we view the stars. My name is Greta Gerwig, and this is The Treat. I'm an alligator. I'm a mama, papa coming for you. And the treat that I have is uh, David Bowie's album, 
the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars. I don't know why it missed me or I didn't know about it, but I don't think I, I didn't hear this album until I was 18. And I couldn't believe it. When I heard this album, I felt like it was made just for me. I felt like I was an alien. I felt like I was a man from Mars. <laughs> And I felt like there was something about it that was, it was so emotional, but it was so grandiose. And it felt like, like it was speaking directly to me and the kind of um, something about David Bowie's voice and confidence and humor in it that was, it was just transcendent. You know, I wrote all the lyrics over everything I owned. I wrote, keep your electric eye on me, babe, everywhere. <laughs> I just, I had this sense of it speaking right to me. And it was the first time I'd really wanted to merge with an, with an artist and merge with a piece of art. And um, David Bowie and that album was that for me. When I was in college, I had a poster of Bowie up in my room. It was a poster of him, you know, pre all the characters he would become. It was more of that early, like when he was sort of doing like more, I don't know, London by Tata, that kind of stuff. But, but he hadn't yet, you know, there was no face makeup. There was no red hair. He just looks like clean cut and like, you know, emerging out of the pop scene of the 60s. And I think I liked looking at it because it was like... Um, his self-invention was part of his deep appeal for me, is that he made himself up. For a certain kind of kid, I think he gave you that feeling of like, that's who I am. I either am from that planet or I want to be, but I understand what he's doing. And, and that's how I, that's how I felt. Right. You know, I have listened to everything, everything he, he ever made, but that album just jolted me alive. I, and I'm not a musician, so I had no hope of making an album like that. I just felt like, I wanted to catch a ride on it somehow. The rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. David Bowie's rock space opera from Barbie director Greta Gerwig. Find the treat, which includes... Gina Prince Bythewood on music that was fire for her at kcrw.com slash the trait. Music that engenders inspiration, film that encompasses innovation, books that evoke palpitation, relationships that incubate salvation. 
creative powers stimulated by stimulus is what we call the treat. In the words of someone who inspired me, that's about all, y'all. The show is produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist. Help, we're thankful for it. From Anabas, Laura Kandarajan, and PJ Shahamad. To better days, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.